Welcome to Inside Aesthetics, the podcast for cosmetic, wellness, and business insider knowledge. I'm Dr. Jake Sloan, a cosmetic doctor based in Sydney, and I'm joined by my co-host and good friend, David Segal, an entrepreneur and a multi-clinic owner in the aesthetic space. We'll cover any topic that makes you look or feel good with long form, unbiased, and unfiltered conversations with expert guests from around the world. New episodes are released every Friday and you can subscribe for free on your favorite podcast app, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You should seek medical advice before undergoing any treatment or procedure, and these podcasts do not replace a professional and bespoke consultation. Good morning, Cormac. How are you, mate? I'm good. We've had a a crazy weekend and waking up and being reminded that the clocks have jumped forward an hour didn't help a great deal so oh um, right i didn't realize yeah we've got that <laughs> next week i think uh ours are going for backwards backward an hour. we're gaining an hour yeah whereabouts are you i am in scotland west of scotland so um yeah it, it kind of sharpened my wit this morning <laughs> <laughs> what i want to know about is the after party of the ultrasound course i'm sure the course was fun but i want to know about the after party well, do you know, that was that was poor planning on my part because it was just all so focused on the uh, the course that yeah. I didn't really give much consideration to the aftermath. Right. And of course, I, I, knew, I knew that we had this date this morning. So I've been jumping from one event to the next event to the next event. And it was when I was leaving yesterday. And Gillian, who you've had on recently, yeah. was staying for another night. And I thought, oh, Okay, I should have should have done that. Should have enjoyed the hotel and the relaxation, but uh, it, it turned out they had some um, internal problems, so they couldn't offer any food. Oh, so a five star hotel with no food. So um, I, I want to watch by running away. I think <laughs> interesting. So they have delivery there. Could you get some macas in or something? <laughs> I, I I think probably there was a stream of little vespers heading north yeah. from Glasgow. Yeah. It's um, little dirty Euros kebabs. They're always good to soak up the alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. It's fried yeah, Mars bars in Scotland. It's a, so, and, and Iron Brew. Well, it, it, it's funny that you said that because we had a, um, a couple of people over from Germany for the course and I was I was just telling them about the, uh, the that very item and where best to source it. So, <laughs> right. yeah. And is that accent Irish or Scottish? I'm thinking Scottish, but I don't know. Yeah, it's it's Irish. I'm I'm from very close to uh, where Martina Lavery is from. Oh, right. yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, she, yeah, you've had Martina yes. Lavery on. Um, and so I, yeah. So she's from Northern Ireland. I'm from Northern Ireland, but um, I think I think I left much earlier than she did. I went to uni in, in Scotland at age seventeen. So right, uh, I'm I'm considered by some friends to be Skyrish. Uh, <laughs> if that's actually a thing, so I, I don't know. Well. You're joining us for the first episode of D- Disasters and Solutions. So from this day forth, you are known as the master of disaster. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you, I think. Yeah. Well, that's what you need. That's what you need on your door at CMAC, at CMAC headquarters, master of disaster. <laughs> yeah. Oddly enough, we were, we were talking not about me yesterday, but um, Leonie Chelke was, um, was at our course yesterday and she's, she's the master of ultrasound. And she actually had this garment on that I decided was a bit like a cape. So uh, maybe we need some associated capes for, yeah, for roles yeah. such as we that. Start, so. start your own uh, form of the Avengers. Yeah, yeah, pretty I can, much. I, yeah. I can feel a franchise movie coming on. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, yeah. actually, on that note, why don't you tell us your backstory, Cormac? Introduce yourself to our listeners and uh, where it all started for you and, and what you do now. Okay. So, um, 
basically I started as a, a sheep farming guy from the hills of Northern Ireland. And um, as a young teenager, I was a little bit torn about what I was going to do. I was certainly never going to leave Northern Ireland. And so I was torn between architecture and medicine. And I was going to do that in Belfast, where Martina Lavery um, studied. And so I was a stubborn young guy. And I was told by my teachers, you can't apply for medicine and architecture. It's not going to fly. Um, <laughs> you're not going to get any offers. And I, and I was a stubborn young teenager. So I said, I don't care. Um, so I managed to wangle myself a position studying architecture, but medicine was a flat no. Um, and then at the 11th hour, I decided, yeah, it is medicine I want to do. So where am I going to go? And uh, Belfast was saying, look, maybe we can let you in with clearing. We're not sure. Um, but Dundee University in, in Scotland said, yeah, we'll give you a place. So um, for some bizarre reason, I just released all ties, uh, decided not to stay in Northern Ireland and went to Dundee to study medicine. And having gone down the, the medicine line, hated hospitals, decided to jump into general practice. Um, I then feel like I've gone kind of full circle and met medicine and architecture in the middle. Um, so facial issues, facial restructuring, etc., just feels like a, a marriage of medicine and architecture, or that's how I see it anyway. Yeah. So that's kind of a potted version of, of where I am and, and what I've done. Yeah. Well, we, we've commonly had the conversation around med or this form of uh, medicine being a hybrid between art and medicine. So architecture, art. Yeah, I, I see. Same kind yeah. of thought process. 100%. Yeah. And so now where do you practice? Like, wh Where's your clinic and what's your – and tell us about CMAC as well because we've referenced it a couple of times, yeah. I think, on different podcasts, but, you know, you can formally introduce it for our listeners. Sure. Um, so basically I, I had a slightly odd – route um in again um in that very early on attending a conference um in aesthetics i became really attracted to the academic side so decided i'd do a master's did a master's then was asked to lecture on the academic faculty which i did for five years and recently left that but um through that sort of engagement and writing some articles i was invited to join what was then or what still is ACE, mm -hmm. uh, Aesthetic Complications Expert Group, by Emma Davies. And so did that for four years. And then basically we had a, a slight separation of interests and we set up CMAC at the end of 2020. Um, and that was four of us who did that. So Emma Davies, Gillian Murray, Lee Walker and myself. And so we did that. Um, and that is growing nicely i mean it started from zero uh but it's growing nicely and and it's it's very much a not-for-profit enterprise to raise awareness and make people think uh because you know in aesthetic practice a lot of people like the point and shoot approach whereas we're very much thinkers who say why are we pointing there and why are we shooting this particular thing yeah um, and and it's as much about how to prevent things going wrong as it is treating things when they go when they do go wrong. Yeah. Um, so that's hopefully a brief version of how mm. CMAC came about. Um, and we've already had quite a number. I can't even remember the number now of publications, including my 
scary guideline that I thought no one other than myself and my mum were going to read. <laughs> um, but but people people have been reading it, and a few of our guidelines have done extremely well with JCAD. Um, so yeah, and we're 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 growing. We we decided to take on ultrasound. Um, I've been banging the drum about ultrasound for about four years, and that was largely led by my engagement with inflammatory nodules, lumps and bumps, things like that. And that eventually became a reality. And so that led on to us having this ultrasound training. And it's not so much that we want to be trainers in ultrasound. We just want to engage with the process. Mm. So that that's CMAC. Um, all the while, I started in Ayrshire, um, where I live, um, doing aesthetic practice. And then partly because of my uh, London-based university stuff, I started engaging more with devices, lasers. Uh, I've got a very good friend who's very well known, Dr. H. Consult. I don't know if you guys have heard of him, but yes, he's a big we laser have. guy. Yeah. And he and he said, look, you know, rather than talking about lasers, why don't you learn to use some lasers? So I now do pretty much what he does, but I tend to talk a lot less about it. Because mm. he, he likes he really likes to talk. Um and I'm a sheep farmer. So I just sort of <laughs> quietly do stuff and um and get on with it. So, um, but I, uh, although I do work in London, the pandemic kind of kiboshed that a little bit. And so I live in Ayrshire and practice in Glasgow now. So I have a city centre Glasgow clinic, um, which we've had now for almost five years and has been growing very well um, and accelerated bizarrely enough by the pandemic. So, um, yeah, and I, and I practice there largely. I, as I was telling a lot of the people yesterday, I I don't do much injectable stuff anymore. I'm gradually doing less injectable treatments. I still do them. I still enjoy doing them, but it's a minority of what I do. I'm, I'm much more skin-based, uh, procedural, dermatology-type stuff mm-hmm. uh, and lasers. Hmm. Fantastic. Um, and, and paying a lot of consideration to the, to the skin envelope because I feel that it's often neglected when we consider facial rejuvenation. Oh, don't we know it? We're going to get onto that. So what does CMAC actually do? I mean, when I first heard the name, I thought this sounds like a new boy band. I wasn't sure. It's got, it's got that kind of feel to it. So, I mean, what is it that you guys actually do? I mean, I know that we've got, we've got like sort of a, an association here that's kind of in its infancy called AMET and Jake sort of explained it's kind of similar, but for the listeners that don't really understand, what is it that you guys do? Like who you, who are you engaging with? How does it work? Um, How do you help people? Just give us a little bit of an understanding of what it is that you guys do. Yeah, so I, I was going to say we also moonlight as a as a boy band at the weekend, but, uh, but that's really just a just a side it's just a sideline. Um, so yeah, we we are a complications organization. It's it's really very much about complications, and it, it's funny because we regularly get questions about stuff that are not strictly to do with complications, and we try to hone that. Look, we we do complications, so we're about complications prevention and um, then management when they do arise, and. So, as I mentioned, we we produce a lot of guidelines, a lot of guidance. We have a Facebook group, and we encourage people to join us who um, want to have the highest standards of practice. They want to be aware of complications. They want to prevent them. They want to manage them when they happen. And very importantly, we we want them to collaborate. And and we see that particularly in the in the UK, I'm not sure what practice is like in Australia, but in the US, they, they have a lot more associations and, and groups that work together 
in the UK, it's very common for, you know, a million and one isolated single practitioners. And what we recognize is that having a support network um, and a collaboration, and that's why we're complications in medical aesthetics collaboration, where we can basically lean on each other and hopefully lift each other up in terms of our performance. Um, and, you know, we all have different skills. We uh, see Mac from the, the very outset, we wanted to have expertise from plastics, from, um, you know, dentistry, from dermatology, um, you know, microbiology, we've got ENT, we've got, we've got all sorts um, that are involved, ophthalmology, oculoplastics, basically because some people know more than others about certain things. Um, and, and so the whole, the whole idea is just a coming together uh, and lifting each other up. And we do have, it's funny, there's legalities because we have a phone line, but only for the UK. Right. Okay. And even though we're an international group, um, the, we can't legally give advice outside of the UK. That said, we have a lot of engagement from numerous countries around the world who say, look, we really like your model. Can we, can we work with you to do something similar in our own country? Because they know that there's, that there's legalities. And of course, there's different medicines as well that, you know, we use one medicine and somewhere, somewhere else in the world, they use something a bit different. Fantastic. And that kind of leads us on to, to our little case today. So just to recap for the listeners, Disasters and Solutions, David actually came up with the concept. I thought it was great. And, uh, you know, we got, in each episode, we'll explore a disaster or, or a weird case okay. or an unusual case. And I remember speaking to Gillian when we first reached out to her to do an episode. And we said, you know, we've got this idea to do uh, an episode. And then I saw quite a horrific photo on the CMAC feed about, I don't know, six, seven weeks ago. And she said, oh, you've got to speak to yeah. Cormac. He, he managed a really weird and interesting case. So here we are. So thank you to Gillian for, for putting us in touch. So mm -hmm. why don't you tell us about this poor lady? First of all, you know, how old was she and, and how long has she been doing treatments? And, you know, just a bit of a general background before we get into the sort of the disaster, I guess. Um, sorry, you've got me chuckling now because I'm, I'm realizing that I never ask a lady her age. But um, <laughs> I, I actually, can't, I actually can't remember her age. It might be on the the sort of summary that I that I sent through to you. But you know, she's she's a forties, late forties year old lady um, who's a professional makeup artist. Right. Um, so, unfortunately, as a professional makeup artist, it's very important how she looks. Um, and so, when I met her, she wasn't working. She wasn't able to work. Uh, and her appearance was causing her very significant anxiety. Um, it's, it's notable that you didn't include the word rare in, in this particular introduction to the case, because um, I, I seem to be seeing more and more people that are quite similar. And in fact, Victoria is one of nine ladies who I interviewed remotely during the pandemic, um, who were originally referred to me by, by a safe face, which is an organization in the UK that, that sort of helps and supports uh, and raises awareness of, of complications in the aesthetic arena. Um, so I initially spoke to Victoria um, over video link and she sent me some photos through. Um, and the, the, the story was basically that she'd been injected by a non-professional or non-health trained, as we sometimes say in the UK, person with botulinum toxin, which she was told was Azalur. Right, and which is disport in so, Australian language. 
Yes, yes. Uh, and it's one of three licensed toxins in the UK. Um, we don't believe it was Azalura or Dysport that she was injected with. And that, that fits with the, the other people that I've interviewed who had, you know, similar and varying stories as to as to what happened to them. But basically, very quickly after her initial treatment, she developed these inflammatory lesions um, over the injection sites. And, you know, they were, they appeared to be infected. And so she did what most people do. Um, she contacted her practitioner, as we call in the, the UK. And, you know, they were quite surprised. Um, even though this the person who did it was getting a lot of this. Can I wheel and you back, Cormac? Had, I've just got a question. Yes, of course. So had yes. this this lady, had she had treatments prior? It wasn't like a new non-medical practitioner that she just randomly met. She had had tre- uh, previous treatment, yes, right. um, without problem. And the same practitioner had treated her previously without any dramas? Yes. And... You know, I don't know if you ever got into this because obviously you just managed her case. It's not your job to sort of do the Sherlock Holmes sort of, you know, hunting of the story. But did you ever communicate with the, you know, the, the, the injector to, you know, just ask to collaborate the history and maybe give you the batch number of this toxin? You know, those kind of routine questions. No, I, I never did. And it's a very good question and something that, you know, I do wonder if in hindsight I should have done. I think. The problem was that it, it was presented to me as a rather murky story. Mm. Um, and I think Victoria was possibly the last of the nine that I had interviewed. Nine? Uh, and she right. was, yeah. Um, and she was kind of wheeled out as, look, you know, that we're really worried about this one. She's come forward and she seems to be the worst. And of the nine, there did seem to be... There was a couple that had a little bit of a residual issue, but a lot of them said, yeah, it was a nightmare for a few months and I needed lots of antibiotics and eventually it settled down. Uh, but with Victoria, it just wasn't showing any sign of, of doing that. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pull up the photo and I'm going to show yeah. the camera what we're talking about. Yeah. This poor lady, um, from your description, had two sort of lumps in the centre of her forehead and then one each on each sort of lower crow's feet region. They look like boils or something. Yeah, what, yeah. Did, what, what, what did they feel like? What, and, and how did they just come up overnight or what was the story to these things? So, yeah, they, within days um, and, you know, since Victoria, I've now seen two other people um, who've had similar, if not worse uh, than that. Um, because this is the problem when you, when you see someone like that, they say, Oh, I know he might be able to help you. Mm. Um, so, um, but yeah, they, they, they came up inflamed and these things typically will fluctuate. So they'll get, they'll get bad. Um, um, sometimes they'll be fluctuating. Sometimes they'll be injurated or hard. Um, and then somebody will give them an antibiotic, whether it's, um, in this situation, the, um, the treating practitioner, not professional, um, organized their prescriber to, to get an antibiotic. But it's never a one-off thing. It, it's patients like this, you know, go to A&E and get antibiotics. They go to their GP and get antibiotics. Um, you know, I've had a lady, not to digress, a lady recently who was actually on antibiotics and steroids rolling for about nine months. Oh my goodness. Um, I, I, and the problem is that 
we don't have in the UK an infrastructure that will manage these people. And of course, you turn up to A&E or your GP and they say, well, we don't do aesthetics. And mm. frankly, this is this is a private thing. So please go away and see somebody that wants to uh, or is responsible to deal with this. But of course, in the private arena, nobody takes responsibility. So patients like this end up just, you know, adrift and desperate. It's a great point. I, I remember watching something on YouTube and it was some non-medical injectors you know talking about what they do and, and i just watched it out of interest to see you know how they run their business and stuff and i think they basically inferred that the criticism that they get that they're non-medical doesn't apply because if they run into a problem they'll send them to a doctor and that was their sort of get out of jail card and i just yeah. thought how ridiculous is that you know you're, you're treating people with impunity and yet if you run exactly. into any sort of problem you go well not my problem I'm going to send them to A and E, yeah. and is yeah. is that your experience? Is that is that what CMEC is, is seeing? Yeah, and it, it's it, it's a very um, complex issue because historically in the UK, no one has been measuring the presentation of patients like this in A and E. So when you um, and both Lee Walker and myself approached our local tertiary um, centres about five years ago. Uh, and under a Freedom of Information Act, um, we said, look, we want to know how many uh, injectable complications you've had pitch up in the past year. Mm. And they both came back independently and said zero, because it's a problem that they don't measure. Mm. So if anyone says, look, is this is this an emerging problem? You know, we're concerned that the NHS is getting overburdened with complications from private treatments. Is this a thing? They go, nope, we don't have anyone showing up whatsoever. And of course, it's because they're just being coded as something else. It'll be an abscess or, you know, and I then followed that up um, and I hunted down the, the person, any consultant in Cambridge who was overseeing the revision of the coding system. And I said to him, look, you know, this is something we're concerned about. Um, you know, would you have a look at this? And he said, no, we're not interested. It's crazy. So mm. that, that falls flat on its face. And and ultimately, no one is measuring whether this is, an, is a problem, whether it's an evolving or increasing problem. Um, and, and therefore, it's just happening under the radar. And people are going to A&E. We know it's happening. Um, Stephen Land, who I was talking to yesterday, who you know, mm -hmm. um, is actually working. He's linking with CMAC. We've asked him to, to do some work and try to connect with A&E so that we can have some sort of formal infrastructure, partly so that people are not wasting time in A&E uh, and that A&E, you know, in some way, can say, look, we've got links with this complications group. You have a um, an aesthetic complication. We're going to sort of sidetrack you to someone who has an interest in this and who will help you, mm. uh, rather than either not be interested or not know what's going on. Mm. You were saying that you treated was it nine of these kinds of patients, or so, so I, I interviewed nine, but Victoria was the only one of the nine that I physically right. saw. And and was that um, and were these nine all? I'm going to use the word victim for lack of a better term of the same practitioner or they're all different coming from different places. They, they, they were uh, all the same practitioner. Oh my goodness. That's and, incredible. And so have you got any hypothesis as to what has actually happened here? Because it sounds, well, I'm not medical at all, but I'm just trying to use common sense and logic that it seems like it's probably not an aberration. It doesn't sound like, you know, she picked up a bug on the needle and injected it into the skin. If you've got that many occurrences of it, she's obviously, he or she, I don't know if it's a man or a woman, is injecting um, 
this patient with something that doesn't appear to be what she's telling, what they're telling patients it is. I mean, have you, as a, do you have any thoughts on what it might be? Have you sort of taken any blood tests, seen anything weird coming up or anything along those lines? So um, there's a couple of interesting points in, in what you're saying. Um, so they were all injected by the same person. And of course, it's always a possibility that when a treatment is delivered, a bug can be picked up in the skin. You know, there can be a completely innocent reason for somebody getting a problem like that. And, and in, in the, the, the literature, there will be very, very rare examples of people following toxin injections who get a reaction like this. If you've got a, a practitioner injecting and have nine people who've got a similar situation, there is either something wrong with the product or is something wrong, grossly wrong, in the way they're administering the product. Mm, As in they're wiping their arse with a needle or something. <laughs> um, um, you know, there's something really wrong with, you know, and it's it's, it's definitely at the, at the heart of that. It's not a random thing. There's no possibility yeah. that this is random. Um, when, you, when you say about... Um, Sorry, I'm just trying to get up the pathology. So this is the other thing um, that I um, like to go on about a little bit. Um, in the aesthetic arena, people will inject just about anything into people. But in the UK, if you say, oh, have you considered doing some tests? They go, whoa, what? <laughs> tests? What do you mean tests? <laughs> say, well, you know, have you considered doing blood tests? Oh, I don't know about that. Have you considered doing a biopsy? For goodness sake. You know, there's a biopsy. You might as well ask them to cut someone's leg off. Well, um, it's because these, you've got sort of almost traveling salesmen going to people's houses and garages and nail salons, and they don't know what you're talking about when you talk about proper medicine. They, they just, it's, it's not on their radar. I'm, I'm kind of thinking whether you're a professional or a non-professional or a practitioner or a beauty, whatever it is, if you've like done this to nine people, I mean, what kind of a person continues to practice knowing that they're harming people in this kind of a way? It's it blows my mind. I just is these people human? I don't understand how this happens. Yeah, um, I, I think it comes down to, you know, I, I don't mean this in a derogatory sense. I, I mean in a sort of, I think it's incompetence. They they just they they feel blameless. They 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 don't associate the end result with their actions and, um. You know, if your knowledge is so limited, you just think, well, you know, it's a bit of bad luck or whatever. But if you approach this from a, a medical and scientific method, you are duty and ethically bound to say, this is not normal. It's not right. It's not acceptable. Let's drill down. Let's look at each step along the way. Let's question things like the product. Um, and, you know, I've, I've had discussions with um, with Save Face, um, with Ashton, who works at Save Face. And, you know, there are stories of people who have some bizarre cocktail of toxin that they use and, and, and inject. And we don't know where it comes from. Um, yeah. I've been looking into the, the whole Botulax thing. We talk a lot about Botulax as a, as a dodgy toxin in the UK. It's an unlicensed one. There are other unlicensed ones, but we don't we don't know we don't know if it's a sort of counterfeit product oh. we don't know if it's some sort of a cocktail or 
Well, don't know what it is. So, sounds um, sounds like Ebola, Ebola talks or something. It sounds... <laughs> well, you know, David and I were talking about this yeah. before we sort of came on air, and I said, you know, Botulax, uh, to my knowledge, it's a Korean brand of toxin. Yeah. It's perfectly yeah. fine. I don't want to sort of slander the, the, mm, the yeah. brand. Yeah, of course. So yeah. the question is, is it, you know, a transport issue where it's brought in illegally and it's, you know, it's something's happened on the way mm -hmm. or is it just counterfeit? That, that's the things that are going on in my mind. It's not exactly. Botulax per se that's the problem. Exactly. I, I, thank you for raising that, <clears throat> raising that point. And, and I'm, I'm slightly remiss in, in not addressing that myself. And in fact, the you know, the, the company have said, well, it shouldn't be going into the UK. So why is it getting there? Is is the chain interrupted? Is it counterfeit? We we just simply don't know. Yeah. And it's very, very rare for um, sampling to happen. So we just get something happened. We don't know what it was. And without sampling, we don't know. And I, I did do a biopsy um, in Victoria. So I took two samples one for histopathology and one for extended culture. Um, the extended culture was negative, um, and that's commonly the case. And I've, I've had one patient since that where I took an extended culture, and again, it was negative. But the histopathology did show um, evidence of a foreign body reaction. So there was something there that the body was reacting to, and botulinum toxin should not give you a foreign body reaction. Yeah, right. So... Maybe just take us through the process of how you dealt with this. I'm I'm assuming there's there's two primary issues that you're dealing with as the practitioner, that, well, sorry, the professional that is taking care of this patient. One, you've got the physical issues, which is you know getting rid of the lesions, you know, trying to restore their face to some kind of you know recognizable normality, and then the psychological side where people I've seen the photo. She sounds like you know she's a woman in her 40s. She's a makeup artist. Obviously, you know she's yeah. you know trying to put her best face forward. She's looking at an aesthetic industry. How are you? How are you coping with this as someone that's taken on this disaster and, and sort of coaching this person through psychologically this kind of traumatic experience? Uh, I, I think I'm lucky. Um, I'm, I'm a fairly empathic person, and with a background in general practice, I'm kind of used to managing impact of things um you know sometimes we say that hospital doctors are just very scientific and cut and dried and it's just carry on but I, I do have a softer side and i feel like i utilized that with with looking after her and i think as soon as she felt that there was someone that was going to stand by her side and walk her through it and and i i do describe that as look this is going to be a journey this is you know we can't just go wham bam this is gone um and when I told her that I would stay with her, I think that in itself gave her some comfort and some relief. And, you know, we did, we started a journey with multiple steps and, you know, it began with, with saying, look, we really need to know what this is. And the problem, and Jake, you'll, you'll know this is that often in a situation like this, people don't know what they're treating and that's fine because often we don't. And they'll say, oh yeah, let's give some antibiotics. Mm. Or even better, let's give antibiotic and some steroids. Yeah, and they'll do they'll do that for a while, and then things seem to you know settle a bit, and they go, "Oh, that's great." And then ten minutes later, it just flares back up again because <clears throat> all that the treatment has has done is had a a mild suppressive effect, and they go round and round and round with this, and sometimes the lesions will um, completely settle, and then new ones will pop up, or they'll almost settle and then reappear. It's quite a quite a variable, um, quite a variable thing. And certainly, 
what we know with granulomas is that they they tend to to not all necessarily come up in one go. We will sometimes say that with granulomas that just everything flares up, but that's not a reality. They they tend to that one and then that one and then another one comes a bit later. Yeah. Um. And so this is this is the, the sort of challenge because it is a longitudinal process and. Um, that in, includes the the evolution of the condition and the treatment of the condition as well. So with with Victoria, it was a case of saying we need to work out what it is. Um, are you happy for me to cut a bit of your face off? And of course, you know that's always a challenge for someone. But we do, you know, we it's about being minimally invasive. It's taking a two millimeter sample from two different sites, um, and you know, talking her through the fact that we kind of need to do this because if we don't do that. What we sometimes see happening is that the condition just reaches bursting point. We then get sinuses appearing and we end up with a, a greater cosmetic destruction mm. uh, because there has not been an early enough intervention. And so one of the very simple things we tend to say at CMAC is if you've got an abscess, if you've got something that is fluctuant, it needs drained. Because if you don't drain it, it's going to drain itself. And that can be much more destructive. Um, so... With Victoria, we you know we took the samples. I said I wanted to work out what it was because if we use steroids for an infection, we just make it worse, etc. So you, you obviously diagnosed granulomas, and I guess that's you know what came back on your pathology and, and histopathology. I yeah. see the word banded around so many times by injectors, like you know David could have some filler, gets a bit of a lump, and then someone goes, ah, I think you've got a granuloma. And, you know, it's a histological diagnosis. And yet, yes. you know, I, I think these words are used quite loosely. So can you just sort of tell us your perspective of what granuloma is and, you know, w- what what defines it? Yeah, so you're, you're absolutely correct. Um, and it's, it's a term that is used far too loosely. It is a histop- histopathological diagnosis. And unfortunately, it is used incorrectly by a lot of renowned people. And I I was at a talk, I don't know, about a year ago, and there was a very eminent professor who was talking about his experience with this, I think it was 6,000 examples um, of granulomas. And I was thinking, what? Uh, You know, he spoke with with great authority, and we did this, and we did that, and we did the other. And I I went up to him at the end, and I said, (laughs) that's amazing. You had 6,000 granulomas. How did you manage to convince all of these people to get biopsies? He says, oh, no, we didn't biopsy them. Yeah. And I'm thinking, but he's talking to this huge audience, and they're going away with this idea of what's going on, but it's completely false. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's based on presumption rather than science. And so a granuloma basically is, or when we talk about granuloma, we're typically talking about a foreign body granuloma. And when we inject something, anything, we will get a foreign body reaction. Our body and its immune system will react uh, as it's designed to do. Um, And usually, so with a typical filler injection, we get a foreign body reaction. It's a positive thing. We actually developed the, the new collagen associated with a HA injection that many years ago we didn't think happened. But that comes about because we have a foreign body reaction. Um, But what happens with a foreign body granuloma is that it's an exaggerated reaction and we get an excessive fibroblast reaction, which produces too much collagen, which causes destruction 
and scarring. Mm. Um, and, and that's the problem. And that's where, um, and it's Gottfried Lemperl has been, you know, talking for many years about how with granulomas, you need intralesional steroids to manage them properly and to shut down that process to avoid and minimize the destructive uh, scarring process that, that follows a foreign body granuloma. Um, but it, it is a, a cellular reaction. It's a complex um, lymphocytic, um, monocytic, fibroblastic reaction producing collagen. And we basically want to switch it off. Now, the, the issue, unfortunately, is that sometimes we get not just a simple granuloma. You can have a granuloma associated with biofilm, or you can get a granuloma associated with a, a type 4 hypersensitivity reaction. So there are complexities around that, and we do need to be open to multiple underlying pathology. But we believe a lot of the time, if we, you know, particularly if HA is used, and, and you'll know this, Jake, that sometimes the, the answer is you just get the HA out. Because if you get the HA out, everything mm. else settles down. Yeah. Um, but if you've got a very aggressive inflammatory reaction due to a granuloma, basically it's intralesional steroid is the answer. And that's what we used with Victoria after confirmation that that's what was happening. Right. So what happens next? So you, you take the biopsy, you identify that it's, that it's a granuloma. So what happens next? How, how are you sort of getting rid of these lesions and then restoring her face? Because I've seen the after photos and, you know, she looks a little bit red, but I'm assuming that's going to fade. You can probably hit her with a, with a, a Yaki Yag laser or some sort of vascular laser to address that redness. So yeah. what are the next steps in, yeah. in sort of healing this person? Just going to flash up her after photo. Yeah. Oh, hold on. Let me change it to your camera angle, Jake. There you go. So... Yeah, apart from a little bit of redness where those dots were, she looks pretty normal. It's impressive work, Cormac. Yeah, she, um, yeah, again, that was, it was a journey because when we're doing intralesional steroids, we always say, look, you know, one, this may take multiple treatments. Uh, and two, there's a risk of atrophy, which should be temporary. Um, and of course, she got atrophy because I wanted to hit it quite hard. Um, and so we got the pathology, we discussed it. She's in London, I'm in Glasgow. So it's a case of me going up and down when I'm traveling. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, and agree agreeing that we would start, okay, let's do some, uh, steroid. And she reacted very well, but she got atrophy. So she then had indentations, which she found again, very cosmetically concerning, mm. but she was aware from the outset and she acknowledged that we had to switch off that process to limit the, the scarring development. And, you know, it was always part of the plan to say, well, switch that off and then deal with what's left. So having done that, she then had a couple of sessions with fractional laser. So we used fractional CO2 laser, basically to try to um, stimulate and plump up the area, basically, uh, to address the, the atrophy, particularly within the, the skin envelope. <clears throat> and she did develop some improvement following that. But ultimately, what I ended up needing to do, um, we didn't want to wait for ages for recovery of the fat. As I say, that should have been temporary. But after discussion, we agreed to put in some filler. And so I did a, a dual plane filler approach, putting some quite robust filler in, in a deep plane uh, where it was appropriate to do so. Um, and then superficially and uh, in the hypodermis and intradermally injecting some soft um, and again appropriate for the layer 
product just to, to build up and volumize. And we did get a good improvement and the contour very much improved. And she was over the moon because as a makeup artist, suddenly she had a contour that was workable and was coverable. And absolutely, um, you know, David, what you're saying, we, we did discuss potentially doing further laser to address the redness, but she was happy to to leave it and not go any further with that. I've got about 400 questions for you. Um, there's, there's a lot to unpack here. So I just want to go back to the steroids, first of all, because, you know, most injectors would have minimal, if, if no experience, using steroids. And I guess, you know, the analogy might be for keloid scarring. You know, you might approach a yeah. keloid scar in a similar way. So how much steroid do you use? Like, what, what is the dose or, or concentration, what the volumes, you know, those kind of questions? Yeah. Um, so it, it depends on your country, obviously. In, in the UK, we use triamcinolone and we have 40 milligrams per mil. And I will dilute that one in four. Um, so it's going to be 10 milligrams per mil. Mm-hmm. And it's going to depend on the size of the lesion. And the key really is to try and make sure you're at the heart of the lesion because, again, as you'll know, if you inject below the lesion, you're just going to get fat atrophy. So yeah. it's very much trying to get into the the heart of it. And, you know, volume could be anything from 0.05 to, you know, maybe 0.15 of a mil. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I don't know. It, it's very much, uh, uh, it depends on the lesion kind of thing. Um, and, and on the basis that it may take multiple treatments. And, and, and we don't have any idea of the time scale of all of this. So from, you know, injury to meeting you and, and then eventually healing, how long did that all take? Um, so her treatment was in September 20, uh, 25th of September. And just out of the lockdowns. Went, yeah. And that was another dynamic. Uh, you know, if, if you went back into a lockdown, she'd be stuck. Yeah, exactly. Jeez. And, and, um, and I mean, basically she, she kind of was stuck because it was very difficult to travel um, during that time. And in, in fact, during a lot of the time that I was treating her, I was allowed to treat people in London, but I wasn't allowed to treat people in Scotland. Right. Because there was a different um, a different way of doing things. Mm. And I, I was happy to justify to anyone that asked that I was providing health care that was required. Yep. And, um, but technically, a lot of the care was delivered when I wouldn't ordinarily have been allowed to do so in Scotland. And just looking at the dates... The, the filler treatment happened 12 months after her initial toxin treatment. So she had a year of a journey prior to getting back to a contour that she could cover with her makeup. Right. Um, maybe a bit of a sort of, I wouldn't say it's a heartless question, but it's something that comes to my mind is who's paying for this? Um, in terms of your time, you've also, and I'm not sure how insurance works works in the UK and in Scotland, but m- maybe you can tell us. I mean, generally a lot of practitioners here or professionals would be, you know, potentially reticent to take on someone else's complication because if you can't fix it, 
you know, your name gets added onto the court list or, you know, they potentially could end up suing you because they haven't gotten the outcome that they wanted. So, yeah, the question is, yeah, who's paying for this and who's paying for all of your time? I mean, is this sort of just good Samaritan work as part of CMAC or is she, is she paying you directly? And how are you sort of, you know, your risk profile in your own right with sort of looking at your your premium and what if you, what if you can't fix it? Yeah, um, so that that that's a um, a very difficult question, and it's something that comes up a lot in the UK. Victoria was a bit of a special case, um, and I've changed what I've done since that. Basically, what happened was I was so moved by Victoria that you know, and she she wasn't working. Um, she's a makeup artist, she isn't working. Combination of lockdown, but also the fact that she can't present herself. So <clears throat> she didn't pay anything um, for this, uh, including the pathology. I, I paid for the pathology. Wow. Uh, or my clinic, my clinic in Glasgow paid for the pathology, I should say. Um, but uh, And my, my friend, Dr. H, um, I was um, using his lasers when I was down in London. So he, he kindly, and he, you know, offered uh, his input as well uh, at times in relation to uh, when we were using the laser as well. Um, so that was phenomenal. Um, but she, she didn't pay anything up until the point where, you know, we discussed, look, you've got this contour irregularity. We can give it time. It will gradually improve, or we can use some filler. And what we tend to do is to say, yeah, Glasgow and London are different. And I, again, I said, look, I'll, I'll discount slightly the price of filler, but she paid almost normal price for the filler at the end of the day but that was a year after the journey started so um and you're right it is very difficult um and since that i i can't function that way and as you start to get recognized as somebody who will help people if everyone wants help and you help everyone at your own cost then then you don't survive for very long so we've had to alter that model since victoria Mm -hmm. but that was how that was how we work things with her yeah. And, and what about your insurance side of things? I'm, 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 I guess I'm asking more generally about people in your position about taking on these cases yeah. and they could turn litigious yeah, yeah. at some yeah. point. Oh, well, yeah, the insurance side is very interesting. And I've, um, as I was saying yesterday, with with adopting and using ultrasound, I'm seeing more people who've got sort of chronic issues, typically post-filler injection. And it's not unknown for the lawyer's letter to arrive requesting the medical records before I've actually seen the patient. <laughs> and, you know, that that is a worry because, um, you know, you're more medical legally aware at that point. And then if they suddenly require you to go to court, uh, and in the UK, the court process is an absolute nightmare. They have no consideration for your time or your livelihood. So you could potentially spend weeks running back and forth to court um, to give evidence in a case where, you know, you, you've tried to help someone and you've tried not to charge money or you've charged the bare minimum or whatever. Uh, and, and so in the UK, certainly, there, there doesn't exist a structure whereby people get structured help and support. And as mentioned earlier, CMAC are trying to look at a model whereby we can come up with designated centres who will say, you know, we provide tissue sampling, we provide ultrasound, we provide blood testing. We provide ongoing follow-up and, you know, again, there can be support coming from different areas. But, you know, these are things that, that any population need to have so that they have some predictable method of 
receiving help. Again, maybe a slightly insensitive question, but it's an important question. What, in retrospect, did the patient kind of scratch her head and go, I can't believe I went to someone non-medical and I can't believe this happened to eight other people. And what, what was her sort of view of what, what she does with that practitioner? I mean, it's one thing to yeah. just be angry, but also, you know, this is not just an isolated case. So what, what, yeah. what happened from that? Angle? And maybe also as well as like, what, what was the, what was the impetus for the decision in the beginning? I mean, did she, she said she's in her forties. Um, I'm assuming she might've done some level of research. I'm, you know, just to not hijack your question, but just to add to it, yeah. you know, yeah. did you kind of question her as to what led to deciding to go down this pathway for treatment? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, it's, it's not a simple answer. Um, sorry, but we're sort of firing all we, we're so interested yeah. in this. Sorry. We're <laughs> Please feel free, feel free to guide me and pick me up yeah. where I've gone off on a tangent. Yeah. But, um, in the, in the UK, obviously, and probably in Australia, it's an industry. So a lot of the time it's, people saying, hey, I'm incredible uh, at what I do, you know, come along and I'll, I'll allow you to be treated by me for only a large sum of money. <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's very well, it's very well sold. And, and you know, the, the non-healthcare trained people will present themselves as, you know, I've been doing this for a long time. I'm really awesome. And it may well be that they are. But, you know, people get drawn in by marketing and they think, oh, okay, there have been examples within the nine, and I don't think Victoria was one of them, but within the nine, there were some of these patients who were told by this same person that she was a nurse. So people are pretending to be nurses. They are reporting that they're doctors. They are possibly even, I was reading an article this morning where somebody who apparently had been trained as a doctor abroad, but was now working in the UK and, and not a registered doctor in the UK. So it, it depends on the story that is spun as to whether people think, oh, yeah, this sounds really good and we'll just do that. Sometimes they're they're drawn by the price and it could be like, wow, this is only half of what I would expect to pay. And rather than that ringing alarm bells, people sometimes say, yeah, I can spend that other money doing something else. And, of course, if they are then presented with a large bill of actual care delivered to remedy the problem, then they realize that there's no economy in, in their initial approach. So um, there's various drivers for why people will select different practitioner, um, but it's, it's typically when the wheels come off that, that then people have regret. And, and other people that I've seen since that who've been treated by non-health um, trained practitioners have, have the same feeling like, you know, and they're often sensible human beings who it's just been an error of judgment. So... <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I don't know where to start with this. I mean, th <laughs> yeah. this this case actually made the national newspapers, to my understanding. And yeah. actually, it it should be said that because you've mentioned her name and a few details, this can't be confidential because she's been in the national newspapers, correct? Exactly, and that's uh, otherwise obviously I wouldn't be mentioning names and, yeah. and referencing things. But but it has been, you know, it's been on the TV and repeatedly in the newspapers. So so yeah, it, it's certainly in the public domain. So. Um, has there been any sort of, you know, knee-jerk reaction or, or, or I guess knock-on effect from this where patients like her kind of go on a bit of a, you know, a mission to sort of highlight good and bad or, or not really? I mean, I, I think Victoria did do that to an extent in the news. And, you know, it, it has been discussed and presented as a real issue, but mm. it's not being picked up 
And there's no longitudinal process where flash in the pan it's just it's yesterday's news all of oh. a sudden and, and so no one really cares I guess because well, well yeah I mean we I mean, can but I guess the industry's not joined up like you said hmm. you've got a million people kind of siloed in their own little private clinic not talking yeah. mm. and so certainly yeah. the patients who go to them are also not talking I'm yeah. assuming of course yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean gosh I mean I'd be It'd be fascinating to talk to her if she'd be willing to come on and have a chat with us. I mean, even though we're not national news or anything like that, we do speak mm. to lots of, you know, thousands of practitioners all over the world. If we yeah. could present this case study and hear her perspective and her journey, it could be, you know, it's better than nothing. I mean, it could be something to get the yeah. word out there and hearing it from her perspective. It'd be mm. fascinating. I, I I think she would be open to the, you know, the possibility of it. I mean, I, I really do. She's a lovely lady and and... You know, I can, I can certainly ask her yeah. if you'd like me to. Cool. Um, how, how did you yeah, get in please. touch with the other eight? I mean, how did that transpire? So they all came via Save Face. Right. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess just through the complications network and, and, you know, the fact that I'm very hands-on and a lot of people are not, um, I just arose as somebody who was willing to intervene and, and try and help and, as I say, once you've helped once, then you become an easy, an easy tap for oh, you did this before. Any chance you could help this next one? And you know, it's 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 something that I'm interested in. I I, I enjoy this kind of activity, and I obviously like helping people. So it 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 kind of works for me as well. So yeah. Um... I, yeah. So what happened to this injector? Because of course they're not medical, so there's no medical negligence really, uh, and they don't have a license to lose. So what's the repercussions? I, 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 this is where I don't understand the non-medical injector. Yeah. So so you're absolutely correct. And, and again, the problem for the patient is if you've got somebody who you know has a very small business, they're doing things cut price, they're potentially not generating a huge amount of revenue. So if you go after them legally, do they have any money to take? Mm, it's awesome, and, yeah. You know, they're probably not insured. So if they're not insured and they don't have any money, then is there any point spending thousands of pounds legally chasing them for something they don't have? And and this is partly why nothing ends up coming out of it from the patient perspective. I, I was told that Victoria did um, have some success, but I don't know the details of it. I mean, this is probably a stupid analogy, but... Imagine there were still people using coat hangers to do abortions in an alleyway. You know, eventually yeah. if that person got caught, they would they would go to prison for battery and potential death or whatever yeah. injuries they caused. So this is battery. Yeah. This is nothing short of... Uh, yeah, I, I, don't know, I don't know what the legal term is. Assault. But <laughs> assault, yeah. 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 Well, <clears throat> and potentially actual bodily harm and all sorts of things. But yeah, it's... It, it's tricky and it depends on the law and it depends on the interpretation of the law and the appetite to apply mm. the law. And in the UK, there just doesn't seem to be any. And no matter what way you cut it, if somebody starts sticking something in your face, they're assuming a duty of care and they're not providing the care. Yeah. I mean, it's incredible. So we, are, we joke all the time. You'd never go to someone to take your teeth out who wasn't an, a dentist. Or any other example, yeah, you, you wouldn't let someone do your hernia who's not a surgeon. So yeah. why would you let someone inject something in your face? It's just so I just, bizarre. I just think it's just been the way that 
well, globally, I think the seriousness of these treatments are downplayed. They're, you know, akin to getting your nails done or your hair done. I think, yes, and, and yes I think but the government even is turning a blind eye. That, that, that's where I can't understand it. I, I get the patients are uneducated and they know no better. It's I, not a I big do. enough problem for the government to care about yet. That's why. Well, <laughs> exa- well, for one, they're not measuring it, so they don't know what size the problem is. And the, the reality with, I need to be careful how I say this, um, there is potential for getting away with it. Because unlike the hernia scenario, if, you know, if I go in having not been in an operating theater for more than 20 years and say, you know, I've seen hernias done. I could, I could probably do a hernia. I'm sure I can work it out. You know, I've got a, a remnant <laughs> of a memory of how you do a hernia. I'm going to come unstuck. Stuff is going to go wrong without question. But if I give my 15-year-old daughter an injection of filler and say, stick it in someone's lips, she could probably get away with it because it's it's got a low percentage of going wrong. Mm. And I think that's the problem. And if it was something that was had a much higher complication risk, then it would be a major issue. And, you know, I've said this before, and, and I hope it doesn't come across wrong, but we almost need somebody important to have a severe reaction yeah. before something happens. You know, somebody important needs to lose their sight following a, a filler injection, and then suddenly all hell will break loose. So I guess sort of moving on a little bit to just talking about, you know, this issue in general, I know that Jake and I were discussing, um, you know, potentially some of the UK licensing laws that are being changed. It was brought up in Parliament. Is, is that sort of making any material difference or improvement, or is there sort of change on the horizon as a result of that? Uh, so the, the the big thing was Bruce Kuehl, so Bruce, Bruce Kuehl, 2013, um, and the, the sort of famous line was that dermal fillers in the UK is no more regulated than a toothbrush, you know, and it was <laughs> something must change. And this is nine years ago. And basically what happened was the Department of Health just took his recommendations and watered them down. Mm. And very little has happened other than the fact that in 2017, I believe, in Scotland, we have regulation now. Um, so within the UK, Scotland has regulation. Um, in the UK, uh, sorry, in, in England and Wales and Northern Ireland, there isn't any regulation. So anybody can basically do anything pretty much, as long as it's not surgical. And which, Anyway, it's complex. But in terms of if we're talking about injectables, UK, apart from Scotland, you can do whatever you want. But in Scotland, it's only if you're a doctor, dentist, nurse that you're regulated. So um, if you happen to be a pharmacist, um, a podiatrist, you can do fillers in your living room. If I do that, then I potentially go to prison. So it, it's... It's, it's insane. Not, it's not uh, sensical. There's no equity. No. Yeah, there's, do, do, there's no equity. And... and <sighs> I was going to say, do, do you think it's because, you know, how, how do you grandfather these things when everyone's doing it? Like, it, 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 it's the reluctance from the government because it's always been said that they make a lot of money and and VAT, yeah. which is sort of uh, GST um, or or whatever, like all, all these silly arguments. But is that true, or is it just hard to sort of know when to start? Is that is that the problem? Yeah. I, I- I suspect that they don't have the appetite. And what they've done in Scotland is basically they've gone for the low-hanging fruit. Mm. So doctors, dentists, nurses, yeah, we'll just threaten them. We'll sort of 
take some money off them to regulate them. And the, the kind of trickier people, yeah, we'll put that as part two of what we're going to do one day. Uh, um, what does the regulation look like? What do, what do they? What what are the law? What what are the bullet points? Oh gosh, I can't I can't quote the bullet points. What what I can tell you is I I used to have an airshow based clinic. It was a little at home clinic, uh, but it was you know dedicated proper clinic uh, set up, um, all inspected, regulated, medical sinks, you know all of this sort of stuff. Um, but as I did more and more in Glasgow, uh, it the the inspections that they do, it just wasn't worth my while um, to continue with that. So they'll come along, they'll inspect, they have all sorts of requirements, reams and reams of requirements uh, in terms of you know cleanliness checks, um, wastage contracts, um, engagements with uh, your you know with your patients with the public. All sorts of stuff. It's very, uh, very full on. Okay. But only if you're a doctor, dentist, nurse, mm. um, and they they review you at intervals and charge you an, an annual fee for for the regulation. Gosh. So, I guess when it comes to I guess complications in general, um, mm. what do you think the main main factors are? I mean, I've sort of put a few bullet points, whether it be competency or poor patient selection. Is it lack of training? I guess I'm asking more from like a CMAC perspective as, as a team, as a collective. What are you guys seeing as being the the primary factors that are leading towards like, you know, serious a- adverse events? Um, well, it's, it's the usual thing. You don't know what you don't know. And, and um, if people are, you know, we, we talk about how people go on a one-day course or a two-day mm. course and then that's them for the next 20 years. But uh, trained individuals, uh, healthcare professionals, typically do care about their patients and they do want they want to have a good business. So they want to expand what they're doing as well. So they will typically engage um, in, in ongoing training. But ultimately, they, they don't know what they don't know. And um, you will have a range of people who are naturally gifted at what they do. You'll have a range of people who um, are very reflective in terms of, of looking at what they do, what their outcomes are, and how they can optimize their outcomes. There's going to be a lot of variables, but um, it's, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Um, we, we, we do think of, you know, the patient factors, the practitioner factors, the product factors, and we do look at all of those things. And in terms of when something goes wrong, Think of all the different elements that can give rise to a complication. Um, but it, it's very variable. And, you know, you can talk about patient selection. There's a lot of discussion about overfilled patients, about people with psychological issues. You know, I've spoken to people recently who I've thought of as being, you know, you know, high performing kind of guy. And I'm, I'll start talking about, uh, about body dysmorphic disorder, incident selection, um, you know, and, and they, they seem to have very rudimentary understanding of, of, you know, how to prevent, how to manage. And it just shows the, you know, the monster of the, the, the task that we're faced with in terms of, of caring for our, for our patient. Mm. Going back to the speculation that it was Botulax, what, why did you guys think it was that particular brand when the practitioner said, no, 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 it's Azalea? Like, where did that story come from? Um, I'm not sure. I, th- I think I think there's been an element of joining dots, and Botulax is certainly the one that is is most talked about. So that that has been a an assumption 
rather than anything else. Okay. Uh, the reason I'm bringing it up is because, you know, even here in Australia, and I'm sure you guys have the same problem, uh, all injectors, we get random WhatsApp messages from unusual pharmacies across the world. Often they're based in China, often they're not. Um, DMs through Instagram, um, you know, it's just bizarre that, you know, they sort of got a feed of photos of like boxes of, you know, funny fillers that you've never heard of in some factory or wherever it is. And they say, oh, you know, we're, we're a distributor of this filler or this toxin and so on. Do you want some? And, and, and they want you to communicate through WhatsApp or a DM that that's how they run their business. And often, you know, cause I've investigated this, they'll ask for either a PayPal payment or cryptocurrency or okay. a bank transfer to a, a bank. It's very, very shady and odd. Mm. So I, I, I just, I, I just wonder if it, if that has tempted someone, I mean, it must have. These companies are all over the place, and I just wonder if that's more of a problem in the UK because here in Australia we're obviously geographically isolated, but we have quite a robust border force. And if you get caught, yeah. you're you're completely fucked, basically. Whereas I know in the UK, you know, you're, you're part of the well, you're not part of the European Union, but you know, you, mm. you're in such a sort of an easy access, uh, high transit of yeah. people, and you've got trains going from Paris and and so on. It'd probably be easier to get stuff yeah. in the country yeah and it's 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 interesting because historically there were doctors dentists nurses who were prescribing for other people to administer toxins uh, and that was considered to be potentially a route where other administrators could be limited but you know with with online pharmacies and things like that we now have other options and just out of interest, I went on to one of the, the online pharmacies during the week and thought that I would order some Botulax. And I managed to place an order without them ever asking for a GMC number or any other sort of professional code. Yeah, It was just a case of, yeah, that's fine. Um, so this is presumably giving better access um, to toxin so that um, the requirement for a prescriber is is removed. And one thing that has happened in the UK is that the the regulators, GMC, NMC, and GDC, are taking a and GPHC as well, uh, are taking a, a firmer line in terms of people prescribing for um, for other people to administer mm. toxins, basically. Mm. Yeah. Where, where was that pharmacy base that you did your little experiment with? Oh, uh, I I can't remember. I can't remember. Uh, they they came up as a UK pharmacy. Whether they were actually in the UK, I, I don't know. Mm, interesting. So I just did, just did a Google search and and I thought, okay, let's have a let's have a play. <laughs> uh, and I, I was a little bit surprised because I, I I did wonder if it was maybe an eBay thing, but no, this was an <laughs> an, an, an advertised UK online pharmacy that was that was selling and and allegedly were going to sell Azalur and other toxins as well. And and I don't know if they were going to ask for. A GMC number to purchase that, but I thought, well, I'm going to I'm going to try and see what the story is with Botulax, who say that they won't, um, or they they don't recommend or don't acknowledge UK use of it because it's not licensed. Yeah. Mm. Um, what about DIY injectors? So we've spoken about people that go to practitioners who aren't trained, but you do see people that think, you know what, this looks pretty easy. Just gonna going to do my own so i mean do you, do you see yeah. those sort of diy people i mean it's not like putting down um you know uh, i don't know 
It's not like, I don't know, putting a cabinet together from Ikea or putting something. <laughs> it made sense. So, I mean, what's your experience with that? And are you sort of seeing same, same kind of things happening with people deciding to have a crack at their own treatments? Do you know, um, I have not personally seen someone self-inject and have an issue. Um, I'm sure it happens. Uh, I'm confident it happens. But I personally have not seen anyone. Mm. And um, yeah. Um, And unfortunately, that kind of reinforces my earlier point that I think it is something that people will often get away with it, which I think is one of the reasons why the, the issue is so unchecked. I guess you're probably more likely to make sure your product's legitimate if you're putting it in your own face. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Although I, do, I, I do remember um, in in the sort of research for my my Don's paper uh, coming across a, a case where somebody in the the US was injected with bathtub silicone. Oh Jesus! Um, and and they actually died. Um, they didn't self administer that, but um, yeah. Um, Wow, people can be, wow. can be quite uh, adventurous in terms of what they'll 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 install. Yeah. But, but yeah, self injection, I believe, is a problem, and I think that you know it it, it really does. I don't know what you do with people who self inject because, to my mind, anyone who injects themselves is not very clever, and unfortunately, there are professionals who will inject themselves and. You know, it may well be that they think that that's okay in certain circumstances, but I personally don't agree with that. What do you yeah. do if you get a complicate? If you get like a an occlusion, you're going to start. I mean, yourself I'd- inject your highlights. <laughs> no, but wow. joke, by the way. Yeah. I'm, I'm not yeah. advocating yeah. that people do that. Now, wow. I guess some summary points. So, if we've got any consumers or, or patients listening, what what would your advice to be? I guess this is UK specific. You can only speak for the UK about how to find a reputable injector. Hmm. I, I, there is no regulation per se for um, reputable injectors. Um, I think it does require a little bit of detective work to try, you know, assess people, see what their reviews have been like, check out their websites, maybe try and see if there's opinions from somewhere else. Um, but you know, Save Face, um, the group that I mentioned earlier, they there is a Save Face register, and they will assess people and check them out. And um, I, I know of some clinics in Scotland who are also Save Face registered. It doesn't mean you're a good injector. It doesn't, you know, there is no way of establishing that you are in fact good. Um, personally, I'm not on the Save Face register because I'm already regulated by uh, the Scottish regulator. But Mm. um, in England and Wales, Northern Ireland, I I guess that would offer a little bit of comfort. But other than that, there is no real way other than checking reviews, Mm. going along for a consultation. And what I would, I always work on the basis that someone comes to see me, it's a consultation. We are not by default doing a treatment. It's a case of we have an assessment and if if they choose to hit the go button, uh, and depending what the treatment is, when that would happen in terms of the timeline, um, then then that's fine. But I, I think from a patient approach, they should they should have a healthy amount of skepticism, recognize that the industry is pretty unregulated, and you know go in with their eyes open. And mm. I think if they do that, they're they're going to be as safe as they're likely to get. 
Yeah, I think it's the same advice here, to be yeah. completely honest. And of course, if you're going to see a doctor, dentist, nurse, uh, here we would have the ARPA register. You've got the GMC register. Make sure they're actually a licensed person and, and yeah. they are yeah. who they say they are. Um, yeah. you know, going back to what you said about those people masquerading as nurses and doctors, I mean, surely that's a crime. Uh, that's got to be is. a crime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that, that is a crime. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and again, we, we don't really get to see what, what happens in those situations, it's not very well publicized, but absolutely, it is a crime. And, and uh, the hope is that that the law is, is actually applied and that these people get the, uh, the punishment that they deserve. Mm. It's insane. It is. Um, what are your thoughts on, I guess, training, um, assessment, some kind of standardized like, level of competency that injectors need to have. I guess we, we, it's hard to sort of talk about people that are not even doctors or nurses that are somehow slipping through a loophole in the system. But I guess for people like us here in Australia where everyone that ad administers these kinds of products has to be a doctor, dentist or a nurse, mm. what do you think in terms of trying to, I guess, come up with some kind of standard, some sort of strand, standard training pro program? Because it seems to be an issue globally that there is no regulation in terms of what qualification um, you don't need to have a specific qualification to do these types of procedures other than having your, you yeah. know, your, your registration as, as a healthcare professional. What do you think that looks like if you had a magic wand or you had to sort of come up with it with a process that would get everyone to a certain level of standard um, to ensure safety and, and you know, a, a, I guess an acceptable level of aesthetic outcome? I, I think that's an excellent point in, a, in an ideal world. That's what we should have. And people should be, signed off in the same way that they are with traditional medical practice that okay you have demonstrated competency you can now you know check you're you're now free to go however you're going to require some sort of biannual review or something mm -hmm. but it needs to be it needs to be standardized it needs to be fair it needs needs to not be driven by industry because the problem is that there's always entrepreneurs around who are saying i can cash in on this and if you've got a scenario where someone needs to be, you know, rubber stamped is okay, then certain individuals will say, oh, you need a bit more training. Therefore, <laughs> I need a bit more money. Yeah. Um, so it, it needs to be a very ethical process and ideally led, you know, nationally so that, so that it's um, consistent across the whole area, basically. But um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's noteworthy that because I, I used to do a lot of um, filler training. Um, and one of the key things was somebody has attended for training. Yeah. They have not demonstrated a level of competency and they're not being certified as competent. They're being certified as having attended. Yeah. And it, it's, it's such a shame. Yeah. And it would, be, it would be great to see a way where you, know, you could have a, an ethical process where, you know, people are just told, look, you know, you're, you're a bit behind the curve on this. Suggest you go and do that. Or here's some opportunities for mentorship to, to learn and upskill because, you know, that's what should happen. Yeah. But there's no sign of it. I mean, the problem with that is that, you know, I enjoy mentoring. I enjoy training, but to have someone sort of tagging on your clinic for a week at a time that there's no real, you know, it slows your clinic down. Your patients don't yeah. like it. You probably don't get paid for it. it. It's sort of, you know, it, it's a very, 
altruistic a way of going about it, but it's not realistic mm. because you know you've basically got to be very charitable or, or not. Yeah, yeah. It, it's like I medical mean, it, school. It, it, I remember, you know, the doctors in in the NHS where I learned. You know, you basically mm. just hang around like an annoying medical student and pick up some stuff. <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and no one's getting yeah. paid for it. So is that sort of how how you foresee injectors potentially learning? Um, I think it would be the best way for them to learn. Um, The the problem is, as you say, you know, it slows your clinic down. So I have spoken to people in the UK that will say, yeah, yeah, I I do mentorship. Um, People come, they sit in the corner, they shut their mouths and they pay me a thousand pounds a day. Yeah. And and you think, well, okay, they're going to learn some stuff, but that's not optimal. And it's going to be inconsistent because other people will say, you know, they'll involve people. They'll they'll gradually get them more hands-on so that they can develop their skills. And, um, you know, Mm. how do we make that consistent? And how do we make it such that an independent enterprise cannot be suffering by saying, oh, yeah, I want to upskill people and train them while my competitor next door refuses to and just carries on making money. Yes. Yeah, that's the problem, isn't it? Yeah. Well, it's, yeah. it's, it's kind of crazy. I mean, I find, I'm, you know, from an outsider looking in, I mean, I've been in the industry for a yeah. long time, but, you know, very much, you know, an outsider in terms of, you know, I don't actually do these treatments. But I kind of worry that if we as a, as a global community don't get our shit together in this industry and sort of fix the problem ourselves and we're sort of crying out for governments to come and regulate, that they're going to fuck it up. Because when governments get involved, they tend to overreach. They don't have any context. There's no common sense. And then everyone's unhappy with the outcome. And I kind of feel like if other professions can do it, you know, why can't, why can't we seem to get our, get our shit together and actually start? And maybe it's a lot more com- complicated than that, but I feel it needs to happen because I don't think anyone's going to like the outcome when governments step in and start controlling this and, you know, making decisions that people aren't going to be happy with. I, I, think, I think the problem, though, is that um, voluntary regulation doesn't work mm. self-regulation doesn't seem to work because you invariably end up with little gangs and you know you're not in my gang. oh you are in my gang i like you oh no i don't like you you should be in that gang. you know it, it, it's it ends up being playground stuff so i mean i think the ideal thing would be and, and actually one of the drivers um other than passion and interest in doing a master's starting in 2014 uh was a sort of feeling that there was going to be a requirement to have a higher level recognized qualification in aesthetic practice to be able to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's no there's no sign of that realistically ever happening. But ideally, and, and when we want to be seen as professionals, surely we need to adopt a stance similar to Royal College of Surgery, medicine, nursing, you know, whatever. And the behaviors need to go along with that. And, you know, behaviors and standards. Yeah. So that that's ideally what I think we should have. But how that's ever going to come about, I don't know. Mm. And there we have it. We <laughs> we have the same conclusion pretty much every podcast when we talk about regulation. We, we throw some really sensible ideas out and then go, hmm, probably won't happen. I can, I can offer to fix it if you want, but I'm, I'm not sure people will listen to me. <laughs> well, it's almost like we need to get enough enough global thought leaders, people with enough clout behind them and enough um, respect behind their name that, to agree yeah. on a way forward. Because, I mean, I 
I still don't understand, you know, why, um, you know, the human body is is pretty similar all around the world, why we have different regulations. You know, there should be a standard of healthcare across across the world, really. Um, and especially when it comes to aesthetics. I mean, we're a small population, you know, in terms of like we're a very small section of the medical community yeah. when you look at the context of, of medicine globally. You know, we should be able to figure it out. If we get enough people together, I feel that it can happen, but you just need we need we need to start the movement. We need to actually get enough people together to actually start having these conversations and and make it happen. And yeah. actually, you know, fostering you know sensible people, people that want to do the right thing, people that want to you know excel and take this seriously as a profession, and actually start being you know guard, like safe, safeguarding this industry. And that's what CMAC well, is, yeah, it, globally. Well, yeah, exactly. That was that was exactly <laughs> yeah. where I was going to come back to. Is, yeah. Is, um, you know, we, we recognize that there is a range of levels of performance. And what, what we're very much trying to do in CMAC is, is to engage people's thought processes to, to actually set an example and help them aspire and climb. Um, and I think if we, can, if we can do that and if we can develop some sort of a culture where, where people want to improve rather than just, you know, hide in their little clinic and inject people all day, and if, if we can instill a, a reflective attitude um, so that people know when stuff is going wrong, so they can be interested to find out when things go wrong, so they can learn to either manage or gain assistance in management, then it's it's for the betterment of the profession, but also for the, the public as well. And, and that's really where, you know, people are left stranded and we don't want that. Absolutely. Well, we will certainly put the details yeah. of CMAC at the bottom of our pod podcast description so people can access that. I think Gillian uh, mentioned you guys had branched out to Canada and a few other countries. Like, tell, How does that work? Yeah, yeah so um, we, from, from very early on, we, we've had a, a lawyer kind of on, on staff kind of uh, or on retainer um, just because we we're trying to do everything right, and we're very fortunate in in that we've had Canada, we've had Denmark, we've had South Africa, we've had Spain, all saying, "Look, we really like what you're doing. We we want to try and have this sort of thing, not just be a part of the the global community, but also have our own local thing, like we have as a a, a local UK element." So we're trying to figure out how that can happen. Of course, there's going to be differences in Canada, there's going to be differences in Spain and, and, you know, everywhere it will be a bit different, but it's about trying to work out how that can happen. Yeah. Um, and of course, we've, we've got guidelines and we're, we're, we always tell people to read the guidelines. We, we, we're going to be producing more guidelines. We're going to be updating the guidelines. Um, and, you know, again, it just comes back to that standard of practice and, um, you know, they may be getting translated into other languages, for example, but the actual mechanics of, of how, you know, for example, CMAC Canada will will take shape, we don't yet know. But there definitely is interest in doing it. Fantastic. Well, congratulations on, on CMAC and also looking after Victoria. It's a interesting case. And uh, I, I gather you're still sort of finishing off with a vascular laser and, you know, getting her perfect. But um, thank you for sharing that. It was really insightful. You're very welcome. It's a pleasure to join you. Thank Fantastic. You. Well, we shall be... Are you going to go to IMCAS? Am I going to see you at IMCAS? I'm not going to be at IMCAS, no, sadly. Oh, that um, is very sad, I'll, Well, I'll, I'll, I'll send my cardboard cutout with Lee. 
Jake, Jake will drink your drink for you. Yeah, that's, absolutely. That, that's just the, he's just that kind of guy. But, yeah. <laughs> so, um, do, do Always thinking it. of others. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maybe next time. All absolutely. Right. Thank you so much, Cormac. It's really great to meet you, and we'll speak soon. Thank you. For our latest news, upcoming guests, and episode topics, follow us on Instagram at Inside Aesthetics Podcast. Using the link in our Instagram profile, you can easily email us, text us, apply to be a guest on the show, follow our personal accounts on Instagram, and even show your love and support us on Patreon. 